G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, where we're back, Dave, for Series 4 of the podcast. We are 2019, who would believe it? I know, I know. We we kind of cheated a bit by squeaking out the last episode of the third series uh, in 2019, like on the 2nd of January, but no one remembers that now, I'm sure. No, I'm still counting it towards the 2018 box office. <laughs> Quite right, too. <laughs> How are you going down there in Melbourne? Are you melting at the moment? Oh, it is absolutely horrific. Uh, driving home, the mercury was nudging 43 degrees, oh. which is getting towards 110 for those still using the old figures. And, <laughs> yes, the out-of-date system? Yes, and, and look, it is actually uh, intolerable for human life in <laughs> Australia at the moment, <laughs> certainly down in Melbourne. And in, in all seriousness, they're predicting we'll get our hottest day tomorrow since Black Saturday which is going to be pretty nasty. Yeah, that, that that's a wee bit scary uh, and, and and sad too. I did note it hit over 50 degrees somewhere today. might have been South Australia. Uh, yeah, well, Adelaide had its highest ever day on record today. That's right. And I think north of Adelaide, it got just ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is very, very hot. I had a quick look at the town in the UK where my sister lives and... At the time it was 43 here, it was minus two there, and I did ask if I could swap with her. <laughs> oh, that sounds idyllic to me. That's, oh, yes. That's, that sounds wonderful. Well, it's it's negative nine currently in Iowa, so I have bought my tickets there. <laughs> Perfect. So before we get into the news, Rob, we'll just give a bit of an alert. We didn't advertise our main topic uh, last time. We've kept it as a, a surprise. Now, we've decided after having... 11 podcasts really heavily focused on reviewing and looking at and talking about the new series. We're going to go very classic and old school. And what better way to do that than a topic, a look all about Terence Dix. Yes, Uncle Terence. I am so looking forward to this. I think this could be a really nice chat. I hope it is for our listeners, but that's our main topic. But we have news. We do indeed. Do you want to kick it off? I am. Some really exciting news. Something that we speculated about in our last episode, but it has been announced. And that is that, yes, we are going to be getting novelizations of the last two classic Doctor Who stories, Resurrection of the Daleks and Revelation of the Daleks, written by Eric Saywood. I know. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'll say it again. It's brilliant. I'm just so excited that we're finally, finally getting these books for real. It's one of those things I remember vividly going back 20, 25 years as a fan and sort of going, thinking, are we ever going to get that full set of Doctor Who novelizations? And then, you know, it always looked like there'll be about seven left over that would never get done. Yeah. And then, then we got Power and Evil out in the 90s and we thought, okay, we're down to five. Yeah. Then we got the three Douglas Adams ones. Like, that was fantastic. And like, well, we're down to two. And, and <laughs> I think a lot of us thought we would never get those last two. Mm. And then without any uh, fanfare or without any sort of, you know, advanced notice or speculation or no. whispering, out of nowhere, we saw that announcement last month that the audiobooks were being announced. And yet we now have the official announcement. So hardcover of Resurrection will be out on July the 18th. Mm-hmm. And the hardcover of Revelation will be out on November the 14th, with paperbacks being published in 2020. So, yeah, two two Dalek stories written by their authors. Yeah, I wonder if those paperbacks will be cut-down versions of the uh, the hardbacks, like when they've done these uh, recent Target-style paperbacks. I think one of, the, uh, one of them was uh, a cut-down version of the hardback. Yeah, I, look, I'm going to buy the hardback, so... You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only speculate, but... But yeah, look, this this is really big news, and 
it's going to be interesting to see what Eric Saywood has to say about these stories in prose, mm. coming mm. back to them so many years later. I mean, has his emphasis changed? Has his focus changed? What's his prose style like? Is it going to be like when he novelised The Twin Dilemma and went for that really proto-Douglas Adams-type style, or when he was doing stuff like Slipback? Or is yeah. it going to be a much more mature and very yeah, nostalgic, maybe, feel? I, I have no idea. Which of the two are you looking forward to? For me, it's not the Davo one, surprisingly. It's Revelation. Oh, why is that? I just like Revelation as a story. I, th- I think it just does clever things, you know, with the loved one and, and all of that. And I've, I've always just found it so quirky and odd and probably my favourite Sixth Doctor story, to be honest. I was going to answer your question and say Resurrection because it is the story I like more and I think that there is perhaps more interesting things that the author can add. But I think you've actually sold me there that you're right. There is a lot more literary background and motif in Revelation that could be really interesting to see him write. So maybe Mm. it is actually Revelation after all. Yeah, look, we'll wait and see, hey? Yeah, very much so. Something we speculated again on last month, Rob. We're doing pretty well with our speculation. Very well. Uh, And that is the start of filming for season 12. It is now official. The cast have been tweeting out and sending out social media photos of them on location saying Doctor Who is filming and it is back. So, fact now, season 12 is being put in the can right now. Yeah, so rewind to our thoughts on the last episode. We thought it was being filmed, in in which case it could come out for the end of the year like uh, last year's series did, but it seems they'll have it in time but just not be showing it for another three or four or five months or whatever. It does seem that way, and I, I guess that means that there is an incredible flexibility now about when the BBC does choose to show it. Now, they, they could absolutely choose to show it in the same time this year. They could hold it over and for a... Uh, kick off around New Year's, maybe kick off with a New Year's special into a season. Some people have been speculating about that. Or they could go all back to the RTD era and kick off around uh, Easter and and finish around June. Yeah, that's right. One thing I don't know, Dave, is where they're actually filming. Clearly, it's not in the UK because, you know, Bradley Walsh is in shorts. I think Jodie was in shorts. They look like they're on summer holidays somewhere. It is definitely not negative to where they are correct (laughs) but as to where it is i don't know probably spain or somewhere again uh yeah it it, it could well be and again it's not likely to be the us either because it's very cold there so yeah it could could be mediterranean europe i don't know gosh unless they're just down the road or something wouldn't that be weird that would be very weird (laughs) we should get on that just in case they are here and we don't know it yes if anybody's seen a group of four strange people and a few film cameras wandering around with a blue police box let us know Yes, please. (laughs) Uh, Final piece of news from me, Dave. This is a really interesting one. David Tennant has started podcasting. So welcome, David, to the world of podcasting. Yeah. uh, How do you feel about this one, Rob? Because I'm really all over the shop in my opinions on this one. I've listened to what is on the channel at the moment, which is like a two minute little bit from him where he's just saying oh, i'm going to be talking to these people and clearly it's people he's worked with on the whole it's olivia coleman obviously from Broadchurch. it's uh kristen ritter obviously from jessica jones and and so on and so forth there might be some people he, he hasn't worked with directly but on the whole the list of names seem very familiar and i thought dave when do you run out of people you know you know well, but maybe he's got dozens he can have on the show i don't know but these conversations could be quite interesting i mean he's got an ian mckellen one already up his sleeve apparently 
Yeah, they they could be really interesting. I'm I'm always very wary of in inverted commas professional podcasts mm. because they can sometimes be very straight laced, very straight jacketed, and 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 you know just sort of being very careful in case the Daily Mirror decides to listen in and find a bit of a clickbait story on them. But if it really is just David Tennant very relaxed and having a chat with his friends, yeah, that could be very interesting. And how long before he asks his father-in-law to come on? Oh, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> Although we should say his first guest is a doctor. It's Jodie Whittaker. Oh, very cool. Yeah, she'll be the first episode. Well, the first proper episode anyway, not this little two-minute thing. And, you know, I actually haven't seen or heard a lot of interviews with Jodie. Uh, mm. Because I don't, I, I don't think she's done a huge amount, and she has tended to do them on shows I don't really watch, and in some cases actively avoid. So yeah, that could be a really interesting one to kick off. Yeah, quite looking forward to that, and quite looking forward to the podcast. I've already subscribed. Excellent. Mm. So should we move into a couple of mini topics? I think so, because Uncle Terence is knocking on the door. <laughs> That's good. Now, Rob. As you know, we we do hot take reviews of the new Doctor Who episodes, and mm-hmm. as and and with the actual series proper, we were then able to go back afterwards and have a bit of a look back at you know where we were in tune with consensus or where we were apart from consensus or things that had blown up. We haven't been able to do that for resolution yet, so I wanted to take a couple of moments and just do that here. Sure, and I think a lot of the comments that we raised about the episode have actually been pretty common, certainly in conversations I've had other podcasts I've listened to, the things that we tended to like, others tended to like, the things that we were a little bit uh, down on, you know, others were, you know, some of them just sort of noticed them, others were very down on them, but mm. but, but the, the, the sort of the spectrum seemed to actually be pretty consistent. But two things have really blown up on this one. Yes. And that's the security guard and the Brexit joke. Uh, and I just want to take a moment to sort of pull that apart a little bit. Which do you want to look at first, Rob? Oh, let's look at the security guard. So I made the joke and sort of the offhand line mm. uh, when we were discussing it that this was an example of the burial gaze trope mm-hmm. that, that, that is a recognised sort of trope in you know, various websites. And interestingly, um, a friend of the podcast, Nathan, on Flight Through Entirety, actually, no, technically this was on Jody Into Terror, their, mm. their uh, other podcast, uh, he, he made exactly the same comment. He, he referenced the burial gaze trope and, and, and the like. And others have sort of taken that and not just sort of made a joke about it, but have started a war over it. Mm. And and there's been this sort of ongoing battle uh, asking the question as to whether the Chibnall era is actually anti-gay. Yeah, look, I, I, I couldn't say it's anti-gay. I, I, I do think, and maybe Nathan said this, or maybe it was another podcast I heard, so apologies to whoever said it first. I just think it was a bit ham-fisted with the way he just inserted that this character was gay. It was like... Oh, hello, pretend policewoman. I've got a boyfriend. Oh, now you've killed me. <laughs> you know, it's it's like there was really no need for him to say he had a boyfriend at all, but it was just shoehorning in. Oh, look, we've put a gay character in. Aren't we good? Yeah, I, I think that the anti-gay thing is by far a step too far. Kind of like the um, anti-women thing that some people threw at Moffat, particularly in his early years, was just, you know, really, really just over the top and I think unsubstantiated. Mm. The problem that I think does exist, and this this is where we can sort of straddle the, the two extremes a bit, Rob, as we like to do, is Chibnall did make a point when he got the job of saying that his series would be uh, very pro-LGBT and, and have strong LGBT representation. Now, 
when it actually comes to gay men in the series, we've had, uh, look, you could argue James I was implied, and history suggests he might be or might not have been. That's a, that's a contentious subject. So you've got James I, who, who, if he was gay, was a little bit creeper, you know, mm-hmm. a little, yeah. little bit, little, not 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 sort of not, not a gay role model, no. and you've got the other guy who, yeah, he's there, and so yes, we get a gay character, but he's dead thirty seconds later. Yeah. So, I think the problem is not that Chibnall is anti-gay, but that he has failed the hurdle that he set himself. Look, I think he just should have made Ryan gay and be done with it. Uh, well, that could have been interesting, or as somebody else pointed out, uh, the two archaeologists could have been a gay couple. Absolutely, could have been. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that that perhaps would have been stronger. But that said, as well, you look back to the RTD era, and we were having a discussion with a few friends of ours, Robin. We struggled beyond midshipman frame to actually find a genuine, openly, explicitly gay male character in the RTD era. Mm. There's people like Captain Jack, who is actually you know the get out there is that he's omnisexual. Mm. Uh, you know, Ianto is his lover, but he is just Jack sexual. He doesn't actually say that he's gay. You get people like oh yeah because um, he liked the cyber woman as well so yeah, yeah yeah so um you know you get um the young lady in the idiot's lantern where if you're looking for it and if you you ex- if you're trained to see these sort of things you can see the implication there andrew mm. garfield's character in evolution of the daleks um the housemate in uh, bad wolf you know there, there are people across the rtd era that could be gay men but there's actually none that are explicitly that so I opened Pandora's box there. I don't want to go any further down, but I just was really interested in the way that this really, really blew up. It really did. And I just come back to the fact it was just a bit of a ham-fisted way of, of shoehorning it in, just maybe so he could say, oh, look, I have gay characters. <laughs> you know, but that's not the way to do it. And and again, apologies to whichever podcast had that thought first, but I can, I'm completely on board with it. Yeah, look, I agree. But as, as, a, as a positive note to finish that little bit... Uh, I mentioned when we did our review that, that Connor Calland, who played the guard, uh, tweeted about how excited he was he had his first ever role on television that night. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read a follow-up one that came about a week later, where he says, Had a lovely couple of days in London, only to return home to my first ever fan letters. Absolutely stunned and chuffed that people have taken the time to write to me. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time and to send lovely messages and letters. I'm blessed. Doctor, hashtag Doctor Who, hashtag BBC. Hashtag fan mail. So I just thought, just a really lovely little thing to see uh, an actor getting their first ever fan mail through Doctor Who. Yeah, it it really is nice to hear. So the other thing that really blew up with Resolution, amazingly, like every podcast I've heard has gone into this in some detail. Mm -hmm. It's been online. There's been flame wars. Is (laughs) is the, in inverted commas, Brexit joke. Yeah. Yeah, which which we didn't really know. Like like I didn't notice it when it happened. Rob, you had to point it out to me. Yeah, I mentioned it, and you're like, "Oh, was there?" <laughs> and, yeah. and when yeah, when I look back, I kind of made the point. I actually thought that if anything, it was a Trump joke. Yes, like withdrawing funding from NATO, perhaps, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Trump's been all about I'm going to withdraw from alliances and we're going to stand on our own, build a wall, etc. Hashtag build a wall, all that sort of malarkey. Mm. Um, I thought it was a reference to that. But people have been getting really worked up about this. Uh, and I don't know whether it's because it's sort of fallen into that ridiculous Doctor Who's too politically correct thing, or it's just tapped into a lot of angst, understandable angst in Britain at the moment about Brexit. Uh, well, well, partly it has, but I think the, the main thrust of it for many fans, Dave, was that it involved 
getting rid of unit or in quotation marks getting rid of unit i mean i had this discussion with kevin scott online and he's like we could bring back unit with just a line they could pop back in any episode you know and they're back it's not like unit has been gotten rid of but to many people it was like oh he's gotten rid of unit just for the sake of a gag and yes he did get rid of them in this episode for the sake of a gag but unit isn't gone for good they'll be back it never occurred to me that unit was gone for good as as you said all you need is the next time you want them to appear the doctor walks in he sees somebody in unit parade and says oh what happened oh our funding's being restored oh good let's get on with the story precisely uh the only thing that was strange to me about that as i pointed out in our episode was i just found it really strange to not have unit and then to have a bunch of soldiers who might as well have been unit yeah exactly right but you know well that's chibnall <laughs> yeah so look i mean there's no sort of big philosophical point to make out of that rob but no. i just I found it fascinating that in a story that was a big special where there is issues about well did it rate well or did it not and you can make an argument both ways and they brought back the daleks and they did different things with the daleks and etc like so many things to talk about this and it's those two things that I've seen more than any others in conversation. And look, on the whole, I think uh, the special was mostly enjoyed by people as well. You know, oh, except for that guy on YouTube who's like, it was like Jodie Whittaker has destroyed Doctor Who, which he's been saying <laughs> since before the series started. Um, I mean, mate, give it a break. You know, apart from him, I think most people quite liked it. No, absolutely. And I think, again, a lot of people agreed with us and made the comment, this should now be the baseline. Yes, yes. Um, I was quite happy with that comment. And, and later on, I thought, yeah, absolutely. It's funny, Dave, when you record a podcast, sometimes things come out of your mouth and then you listen to them later and you think, oh, that's a pretty good thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, I totally agree. As I said, I've heard this on other podcasts. I've had it in conversations with friends. They've said this this was one of the best, if not the best of the last run. And mm. this should be the standard now that Chibdell should aim to meet each time. Yeah, just as as I said, though, I, I get the feeling he thought he really pushed the boat out and that it was really special. And no, again, no, Chris, that's your baseline. Absolutely. All right, Dave, excitement. Davo, season 19 Blu-rays have arrived in Australia from the local Disty. They have. Once again, my social media feed has just been flooded with people tweeting and posting and celebrating the arrival of the season 19 box. It's got people really excited. Oh, absolutely. Me in particular, being a big Davo fan. Have you have you pulled it out and watched it yet? I I have I, I have pulled it out the the Blu-rays that is, and um, I've watched the one-hour interview with Davo, and I have watched the uh, special on Castrovalva. And were you impressed? Yeah, look, I think the. I, I mean, I, I love Davo. Um, the one-hour interview with him is very far-ranging. It's not so much about. I mean, it does cover getting the role and all of that, and he talks about his lunch with John Nathan Turner and all that sort of stuff. But it is very broad. It talks about his past and his father and this and that, and it's really wide ranging. It's almost like a, um, it's almost like a, a career retrospective almost. I th- I just wondered if it was a bit too far reaching because he's got to do another two of these sets and what's he going to say on those interviews because this this seemed to cover everything oh okay no that's interesting i haven't watched any of the specials yet all all i've had a chance to do is put on the visitation and i watched that from start to finish one evening because i mean i only got my copy two days ago yeah Uh, and and i just wanted to watch one of the stories and see what it was like on blu-ray and 
look, I don't know how much it's just my expectations playing tricks with me, but I thought it looked a level of gorgeous above the DVD without any shadow of a doubt. Uh, the colours, particularly on the location footage, were just that little bit more lush, that little bit brighter. And again, I don't know if it's because I was looking more closely, because I was watching to see what the Blu-ray was like, but I was starting to pick out details that I've never picked up in the... I don't know how many times I've watched The Visitation before. I suddenly noticed the power cord to the TARDIS console. (laughs) Uh, I suddenly noticed a Hemetrocyte crystal from Horns of Nymon sitting in there with all the equipment that the Terraleptal has. So... I don't know whether it just there was a clearer picture or I just I happened to see them, but yeah, I just thought it looked really, really good, and I'm I'm just really impressed by these. Oh, lovely, 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 lovely. But again, this um, this one hour interview with Davo, I mean, at, at times he's talking about his regeneration and and Colin Baker stepping into his costume, and and there's footage of that. It it made me sort of worry, like, oh, is he only doing one of these interviews? And if we do a season 20 and 21 set, he's not going to do this? Because this, this is just covering everything. This is very strange. Maybe they're going to do one with Fielding and one with Strixon. Gosh, maybe. I, I have no idea. I mean, what are they doing for Tom's final one? I'm sure they've got Tom back again to talk about his final season. Absolutely. I have no doubt that Christopher Hamilton Bidmead will be doing as many interviews as they ask <laughs> to explain how good he is. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, look, the, just quickly, the uh, the Castrovalva uh, making of is, is quite good too. It's got Mark Strickson sort of leading them through the locations and, and talking and stuff, and, and that's fun. Matthew Waterhouse barely speaks in that one. He, he just sort of stands around and grins and nods. Well, he probably doesn't have quite as uh, pleasant memories of filming Castrovalva as <laughs> some of the others. I mean, what's he going to say? There's the tree I vomited next to. There's the rock I vomited on. <laughs> Exactly, but no. Look, I'm I'm really happy with it, and unlike you, I haven't actually watched any of the episodes yet. But I do hear the film scrubs up a treat. Yeah, I, I really noticed a bigger difference with this set than I did with the season twelve set, which I think is a reflection on the better technology and quality of the filming between the decades. Yeah, very true. But looking forward very much to uh, one of my favourite seasons being next season eighteen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of, I've watched a couple of other Doctor Who stories over the last month. I've had sort of one of those months where things have been a little bit, you know, not the best month. It's been hot and I've had things going on and mm. I've, I've sought out some comfort Doctor Who. Yes. And and I put on a couple of stories. I put on the Mind Robber a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and, okay. And I've got to tell you, Rob, I, I thought, okay, I'll put on a DVD, then I'll go make dinner and I'll sort of keep watching it. So I put on the Mind Robber. Mm-hmm. then the credits to the end of part one started rolling and I realised I hadn't even left the couch to go and start making dinner. <laughs> I was just that enthralled. I watched the whole thing in an evening and I enjoyed it so absolutely very much. And And I was thinking, if you want to link that to uh, the most recent series we've had, series 11, mm. I was just thinking this is an example of getting an established writer from outside of the Doctor Who world and just saying, write a story for us. Yeah. Yeah. Just write a story for us. And the best episodes we had from Series 11 were that. And this was another example of that. So I really enjoyed The Mind Robber. I did put on an Invasion of the Dinosaurs last week as well. And and just enjoyed that again so absolutely very much. <laughs> uh, it is it is a, it is wonderful comfort, Doctor Who, for me. And I did finally get around to watching The Crotons for the first time in a very long time. And I didn't enjoy that quite as much. No, no. That's to uh, one, be expected. Yeah, look, look. once the Crotons actually arrived towards the end of Part 2, it did pick up, but it's very slow until then, and it's a bit of a mess, and 
it, it doesn't quite work. It, it's nice to see them, and, and the Doctor's uh, relationship with Zoe and the performances of Patrick and Wendy are really good. But it is not as good as the rest of that season, I don't think. No. It's a shame it was one of the stories that survived, actually. <laughs> um, yes. Although, what would you swap it for in that season? Not so much in that season, but just Troughton in general. Um, there, yeah. there are so many I'd like to see back. Yeah, if you could trade that for Fury from the Deep or Power of the Daleks or something. Yeah, that would yeah. be an easy trade. Or, or evil, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair comment. Um, which brings us finally to our last mini topic. I've I've been watching not so much Doctor Who, but a Doctor. I had what I dubbed Davo Fest at my place, <laughs> where I pulled out all my DVDs with Peter Davison and a few new ones that I purchased because I recently finally finished his autobiography. It's very remiss of me that I'd never finished it, so I started again, read it from cover to cover, and a lot of the stuff he mentioned in it, I just went out and either pulled off my shelf or went and bought and uh, started watching. Primarily, this amounted to a lot of episodes of Sink or Swim, which I hadn't actually seen. Like, I'd only seen clips of it in the past. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is quite interesting, because obviously it's got Robert Glenister in it, who um, appears in Caves of Androzani in a completely straight role, whereas here he's the younger, chaotic brother to Peter Davison's more nerdy sort of older brother. And I thought, well, this is interesting to begin with. I found it very interesting. I love stepping back into like early 80s, mid 80s television that I've either have vague memories of or that I never actually saw and that I've read about in books but but never seen. I love going and, and discovering it. And, and how did Sink or Swim hold up for you? Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. You know, when you did the Goodies Pirate podcast, there was a section, you know, what couldn't they get away with today? And I think in every episode, there's at least something that they <laughs> couldn't get away with. There's one episode where where the younger brother's waving around a porno mag. And if you freeze frame, there's clearly full frontal nudity on these pages that he's <laughs> waving around. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> you could not get away with that today. This is this is insane. Uh, okay. Have you been watching any other series, Davo series? Well, the other the other main thing I watched was a movie, and this is something that he he talks about very disparagingly in his autobiography. So I thought, well, I have to watch it. It's a it's a Michael Winner movie called Parting Shots. Have you seen this, Dave? No, I'm not familiar with this one. It's it's a very dark comedy. Chris Rea, the singer, is the lead actor. And I think it was his first real acting role. But he's backed up by Felicity Kendall, Oliver Reed, Bob Hoskins, Diana Rigg, wow. Ben Kingsley, wow. John Cleese, Joanna Lumley. And wow, this okay. goes on. That's quite a cast. Da- Davo's in there. And basically, the Chris Rea character gets told he has um, weeks to live or months to live or something. And he thinks, okay, I'm just going to go and kill everyone who's ever wronged me. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes okay. and kills them. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, and, and then hilarity ensues. It's a dark comedy. But it is it is a very average film. Dave, Davo's more scathing of it than I think he needs to be. But I think he's just trying to make the point that it's not a very good film. Right. And, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's worth watching. I think it's worth watching. Okay, is Davo first going to continue as the months go on? Oh, it will. It will. But before I go on, Nicola Bryant is also in this film as a prostitute who comes over to visit Davo and the Chris Rea character. 
don't, don't worry there's nothing rude or you know salacious about it it's, it's a very tame scene but yeah even nicola bryant's in this it's it's crazy well I, I, i'm gonna have to check that one out yeah just don't pay full price for it is my advice <laughs> okay but yes, Davo Fest, I think, will become a thing because I, I did pick up, when it comes to All Creatures Great and Small, we've waxed lyrical about that in the past, but I've just bought the box set and I am sure there are episodes I either can't remember or that I missed because I think there's about 89 episodes or something on that on that set. It's 30-something discs. I'm sure I didn't watch it every week, Dave. I'm sure there are episodes I haven't seen and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I rewatched the first season of All Creatures a few years ago, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I think that first season is the best of it, um, particularly as it has got a lot of Dave O in it. And the other thing I'm going to recommend to you, Rob, is a movie, well, a telemovie actually, called Harnessing Peacocks, which I think is one of the best things that Dave O ever actually did. Mm. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned that before, and, and that's something I'll, um, I'll certainly look at. But, uh, oh, look, I've got a ton of stuff to get through. I've got the two series of Campion, there's several series of the last detective um all sorts of stuff excellent well you're gonna have fun Mm. oh yeah davo all the way excellent all right i think that brings us to the main topic dave and that main topic is terran sticks yes now you came up with the idea for this episode and i was quite happy to to to, uh say yes of course we'll do uncle terrence but what made you think of it dave what 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 does he mean to you I was just thinking of a topic that would let us, as I say, talk about Doctor Who uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a very positive sort of way. I, I, I did want to get back and get in-depth to a bit of classic after doing a lot of New Who just to balance the show out a little bit. And I just thought, you know, we, could, we, we talk about doctors, we talk about companions, and thought, but we don't always talk about these other people, particularly somebody like Terence Dix. And I mean, Doctor Who fandom, I think, is particularly strong in inspiring writers and inspiring creatives and in acknowledging and respecting the writers and creatives. I think that when you ask Doctor Who fans about who are the real heroes of the show, absolutely you get Tom Baker, you get William Hartnell, you get David Tennant. The next sort of lines are people like uh, Verity Lambert, uh, Russell T Davies. Mm. But there is a layer there which is David Whittaker, Robert Holmes, Andrew Cartmell. And mm-hmm. Terence Dix is one of the giants of that field. And and the more we started to plan this podcast, I think the more we just really sort of realised just what a massive part of the show this guy is. And, and I don't know that there's any Doctor Who fan out there that doesn't have some fondness for something, at least, that Terence has done. Oh, yeah. You know, as long as they've been watching the classic series in some way, I'd say. Oh, oh for sure. And, and, and look, I acknowledge we are talking... Uh, classic here although he has had a role as we'll we'll talk about later on even with the new series oh yeah yeah we'll definitely get to that and i'll make the point here you know you say we don't look at you know the writers and behind the scenes people as much and it it is 12 months since we did our Stephen moffat uh retrospective and in that time since i don't think we've we've really concentrated on a writer uh and it's interesting that i'd say terence dicks is probably like the well to which Stephen Moffat would go to in his in his early days. That's who he would have been reading. That's who he would have been, you know, maybe trying to emulate as a, as a child, you know, like many children out there were back in the 70s. You know, I want to write Doctor Who like Terence Dix uh, and, and reading Target novels and such on the beach. Isn't there that famous picture of, of Moffat reading a Target novel on the beach? Although it might be one of the early Daleks books, so probably not a Terence book, but... You know what I mean? He's just inspired so many people, including 
people like Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis, you know? Yep. Gary Russell is one that I've seen in person interviewed on stage where he has said when he was first asked to do a Doctor Who novelization, in that case of the telly movie, his first thought was, okay, how would Terrence Dix do this? And that's a great way to come at it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to go through Terrence's involvement with Doctor Who. Uh, look, we could talk about his involvement outside of Doctor Who, but in the space we've got even just a brief overview of Doctor Who's going to be a struggle. Oh, yeah. Look him up on YouTube. Uh, not on YouTube, on Wikipedia, I'm sorry. And and just look at his non-Doctor Who work. He has written so much stuff. It's incredible. Yes, and produced stuff and script edited stuff. And yeah, an amazingly prodigious career. Amazingly successful. Yeah. But he did start off in Doctor Who back in the Troughton era. And as the as he calls it, uncredited, barely paid deputy assistant script editor. <laughs> These are the pictures you see in, in Doctor Who reference books where he's there. He looks like a young Paul McCartney to me, Dave. He's got the, the moustache, the Sergeant Pepper's moustache and a bowl cut haircut and he's quite young and fit. He, he looks like one of the Beatles in these pictures. Yeah, he's very much of his time, often smoking the pipe. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, just this, this writer who'd been involved with script writing, particularly on soaps, doing advertising work. But then he finds himself in the Doctor Who office. Now, I'm going to reference a few times in this chat, Rob, the time when I saw Terence Dix and, and, and met him and saw him interviewed at a convention out here. Oh, brilliant. And, and one of the things that he said when asked about his time in that office was he said just how dysfunctional he actually found this office. Now, unprofessional, he found this office. He he was he as a young, inspired, up-and-coming, you know, wanting to make his mark writer. Mm. And he sort of found all the old guard of the BBC going to lunch at 12 o'clock at the pub and sort of not coming back till four. Mm. And, 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 you know, really sort of seeing Doctor Who as a bit of a tired series in some ways until he starts to form that relationship with Derek Sherwin and, and, and get more involved. But, of course, famously, this is the time when Terence discovered Robert Holmes. Yes. Now, it's just interesting to talk of it as a tired old series because I guess at this point, what, it's it's six years old or so. It's doing its sixth series, yeah. Yeah, and they'd be looking at that and comparing it to other shows, I guess, that were out there and thinking, God, this has been dragging on a bit. <laughs> <That's>, that's, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not, not going to make my career here. You know, just Let's just get it turned in, you know, turn the thing out and, and let's go to lunch sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. But it was that time where you had Bryant and Lloyd and Sherwin and Dix all sort of shuffling chairs and, and literally different producer script editor combinations on almost every season, almost every story of that season. I mean, it, it is a tumultuous time in the Doctor Who office. Oh, yeah, people think the start of the Davo era is interesting, you know, with, with Bidmead in and Root and then Sayward. <laughs> but but this, this this is much more beyond that, the, with the way it chops and changes. Yeah, and, and Terence really does make his mark on in that environment because he is the up-and-coming, you know, up-and-thrusting writer. He discovers Robert Holmes and works out the Crotons as an emergency story, and then suddenly the prisoner in space embarrassment <laughs> falls apart. <laughs> and, and so they're making a story that he's basically commissioned and discovered. He has a large job effectively rewriting large parts of the Seeds of Death, and that works really well. And then suddenly they're turning to him and saying, oh, we need 10 episodes to finish the series. We've got nothing. Terence, here's a pen and a piece of paper. Come back with a story. <laughs> and, and famously, he sits down with his old mentor, Mac Hulk, and puts together a cracking 10-episode story of the War Games. Yeah. God, I mean, what, what a daunting task. Although, conversely, his novelization of it is wafer thin. How does that work? 
that is true. But but yeah, just to be told, you know, you, you can have one location filming shot, you can have a couple of sets, a limited number of actors, it needs to be done by tomorrow, you know, we need to do, turn out episode one in a week. And by the way, you need to write out Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury at the end of it. And we don't know who the new Doctor is, so could he leave it on a cliffhanger for us? <laughs> and on top of all that, he introduces the Time Lords. Uh, yes, and that's something we will be talking about. But mm. yeah, I, I think that it's important to remember that, you know, we think about Terrence Dix being very much part of the Let's Dix era, and of course he is. But a lot of season six, particularly that back end, that doesn't happen without him. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, as you say, it's an era where people do forget he was involved. I think just because his later work overshadows it. But uh, it can't be understated what he did here, particularly the war games. My God. Yeah, and and look, Seeds of Death is one that I'm really fond of as well. And he pulled that together. And yeah, really important. But off the back of that, of course, he does become the script editor for Doctor Who for what we now know as the Pertwee era. Wasn't TV good in those days? You could just show up and bang out some stories and within a year or two. You were the script editor for a series. Just wonderful. Well, and, and maybe again, it just shows where the BBC was at because rather than saying, okay, this is our flagship show and we need to go get our best talent to work on it, they're like, um, that, that young guy over there, he's, he's keen, isn't he? Do you want to be the script editor, Terence? Cool, you're hired. <laughs> you know, there, there really is that feeling. And, and, you know, famously, season seven could have been the last series. Yeah, but you know that that sort of vibe is continuing. I think when Andrew Cartmel takes over, it's like, oh, you're a young up and coming guy. Do you want do you want to have a go? Sure, yeah. why not? Yeah, no, it's 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 really effective, yeah. and it's really really positive. But what I want to talk about in this this little bit here is famously, I mean, I mean, Terence is a wonderful raconteur. He he's been interviewed on many DVDs and in many mm. articles. He and 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 he he loves chatting about his time, and as does Barry Letts, but. He, he, he consistently says when he's asked about the Pertwee year, he says, well, we started off with the show that Derek Sherwin wanted to make and Derek had a lot of very strong ideas, all of them bad. <laughs> I love the way he talks. I, uh, yeah, he's such a wonderful storyteller and he's clearly exaggerating for humorous effect. Yes. But Terence was not a fan of Let's Exile the Doctor to Earth. He was not a fan of Let's Introduce Unit. Although he respected and liked... Carol and John, he was not a fan of the Lee Shaw character. Mm. Yet, yet, he turns out four fantastically good stories anyway. Well, that's the mark of a professional, isn't it? It, it is. And, and one of the things that I think is really interesting with a script editor is looking at the team of writers that they put together. Mm. Cartmel, I think the biggest thing and the best thing he ever did for Doctor Who was his ability to take a very empty cupboard and find... Stephen Wyatt, Rona Munro, Ben Aronovich, uh, Ian Briggs, you know, yeah. wonderful writers and um, bring them together and, and actually create a, a, a way, in a way that someone like Eric Saywood I don't think ever really achieved. You know, you don't, you don't look at the writers that Eric Saywood brought into Doctor Who and go, wow, what a collection. No, not at all. Whereas Terence, I mean, the first thing he does is he gets Robert Holmes back and that's a brilliant decision. He gets Mac Hulk back regularly, brilliant decision. He, he brings Don Horton in to write for the series. He gets David Whittaker back. Mm. Like, like, if you're going to write... If you've, got, if you've got four slots to fill in the season, Holmes, Hulk, Whittaker, and Horton, that's a pretty good lineup. It's hard to top. Yeah, and, and then, you know, he brings the Bristol boys um, in as regular contributors to Doctor Who. And, look, I, I agree with some fans that their output is uh, a bit variable, but they're very, very solid writers. 
he you know he brings in a number of people but he gets this reliable thing every year you're gonna have a script by robert holmes and it'll be great every year you'll have a script by malcolm hulk about giant lizards and it'll be great you get a couple of Don Hortons in there. You know, that it's just this wonderful um Robert Sloman is brought into work and he works with Barry Letts. Yeah. He, he Terrence Sticks really creates this wonderful cast of writers that really sets the show up. And do you think Dave creates a very stable era, particularly after an era where he said, you know, it was a bit of a shambles? Oh, without doubt. I mean, he's the script editor for five years. Letts is the producer for five years. They clearly, up until Letts' death, were still the best of friends. And they clearly got on really well with John Pertwee. Uh, They got on with Katie Manning when she was cast. They they really seemed to have enjoyed doing this. But, yeah, stable behind the camera, stable in front of the camera. And it shows because the Pertwee era starts well. But it grows as an era. It just gets better and better. And there's so much good in it, and Pertwee cha- you know, evolves into the role, and the mm. unit family grows up around them, and just yeah, this reliable television in a way that look, I love the '60s, but reliable is not a word you'd use about that era of Doctor Who. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but yes, as I said, you then see Terrence Sticks going, okay, well, Derek Sherwin's laid down this track. I'm going to be professional, make the best of it, but then I'm going to start to turn it around to make the series that he and Barry Letts want to make. So Liz Shaw is out. Joe Grant is in, and and they basically create the Doctor Companion team that mm. we still think of as being the definitive template of Doctor Who. Oh, without doubt. Yeah, yeah. We, we think about now the show as being the Doctor who travels with a young lady assistant, mm-hmm. and, and that's sort of the template. It's broken from time to time, and they throw different things in there. But even when the new series is brought back, it's... Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. It's Matt Smith and Karen Gillum. You know, they're, they're the combinations that you think about, and that's what we think about the series being. They they really set that back up. They they move it away from Earth. So in Season 8, you have one series where the TARDIS leaves Earth, and then in Series 9, you have a couple, and then in Series 10, he gets his dematerialization circuit back, and they go off and mm-hmm. have adventures again. Which is quite a change from the, all of the 60s having two or three companions at any one time. Yeah, it, it really is. And and again, they continue that when Kenny Manning leaves with uh, bringing Liz Sladen on. Yeah. And and again, and this is something else that they do. I mean, look at who they cast in front of the camera. Okay, they inherited John Pertwee, but they cast Katie Manning. They cast Liz Sladen. Mm-hmm. They cast Tom Baker. Yeah. They, they cast Ian Marta. Yeah. yeah. That, that That's a pretty impressive thing to be able to say you did. They invent the master. Yeah. It's they, such a strong era behind the camera with these yeah. guys. And, and behind the scenes as well, they're really developing Doctor Who lore. I think I think that with the possible exception of David Whittaker, possibly, Terrence Sticks is the first person who actually sits down and, although you wouldn't call it a showrunner's Bible like you would today, he actually has that thing of, okay, this is what Doctor Who's done in the past and this is who he's met in the past and this is what we know and then he starts to add to that. So... We've now met the Time Lords, and this is what the Time Lords do. And oh, they come from Gallifrey, and they have a High Council, and they mm. have regenerations, and all the, you know, we 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 have the idea that the Doctor has a mentor, and then in his final episode, we meet his mentor. All of this sort of stuff laid out, and for the first time, there's a real vision of the show as a cohesive narrative. Absolutely, and although the Time Lords will get you know changed around a bit, you know, famously by the time of Deadly Assassin, they're portrayed in quite a different way to how they're first portrayed on screen. Just bringing in this concept 
of the Time Lords. It's hard for people, I guess, to grasp that for the first couple of Doctors, right until Troughton's last story, we didn't know he was a Time Lord. You know, mm. fan, uh, viewers didn't know he was a Time Lord. I should say we weren't watching at the time, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, he's the first one that uses the words Time Lord in the script. He's the first one that takes them to the Doctor's home planet. Mm. Uh, it's it's in one of the shows that he scripted that, that Gallifrey is a word that is first used. He you know, works with um, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, creates Omega. Regeneration, I mean, he's the one that basically, with the Barry Letts, sets up the rules for regeneration. Mm. Again, mm. something that we, we take for granted, but the word regeneration I don't think is used until Planet of the Spiders. No, the, the Doctor was certainly renewing himself, but it wasn't called regeneration on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And and at the same time, I mean, I mean, let's let's be honest here. Terran Sticks is fantastic, but Terran Sticks with Barry Letts is phenomenal. Oh, killer combo. Just fantastic. And, and I love listening to the stories that they tell about how they would sort of work with each other and with directors. So Terrence would come in and he'd have to script edit and it was his job to make it cheaper to make. And then Barry would say, oh, wait on, well, we can afford to do this. Or a director would then go and say, well, we'll overspend here and we'll do this. And Terrence is like, no, no, we have to bring it back. And... And, and they work together. And there's there's one thing that I think Terence has said about that time that really struck me. And he was critiquing, not in a nasty way, but just in an interesting way, the process of writing the show now, where he says that no writer's script gets better after two drafts. Yeah, very wise. And and so you know what he would do, he 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 would discuss the story with a the writer. They'll they'll work out the basic blocks of it, and he would commission it. The writer would go away and write a first draft. He would then come in, he'd have a look, he'd call the writer in and go, okay, look, um, you've got too many sets, so uh, let, you, know, you, you say you want a meeting room and a communications room, well, they can be the same room, and you have too many characters, so we'll, we'll, we'll merge those characters there, and uh, I think that it's a bit flabby in episode three, but there's not enough excitement in episode four, and, you know, all, all of those sort of things, they'll work it out, you can say, go away and do me another draft. Mm-hmm. And then the writer would come back with their best possible draft, and as far as he was concerned at that point, that was the writer done. They'd done the best they could do, and it was not going to get better, saying do a third draft, a fourth draft, a fifth draft. So it was his job to then take it and make it work. And now yeah. that just might mean, you know, putting a bit of spicy dialogue in or padding the odd episode out to 25 minutes, you know, by, by writing his famous quarrel scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, or it could be rewriting the thing from scratch. But yeah, like when he talks about hearing that Rob Shearman did, you know, something like 40,000 drafts, of Dalek, he just says, how is that a good creative process? You can't get the writer to be better 43 times. Precisely. They've just got to give it up and let someone else take a look eventually. Two is probably enough, yeah. Yeah. So, Dave, the Pertwee era goes on for, for five happy, happy seasons, but then when it comes time for Pertwee to leave, uh, it's time to appoint a new Doctor. This is uh, a big moment for any showrunner or any producer script editor combo, and look at who they got tom baker yeah i'm i'm th- was thinking about this earlier today rob is there a better handover between both the on and off screen teams than there was from the pertwee let's dicks era to the baker hinchcliffe holmes era i can't think of one no no I, like- I, I really can't because all, all, I'm, I'm just running through them in my head and I'm thinking they were either, you know, there was a bit of a acrimony going on or 
or there was just no one there. Like in the case of Eric Saywood having walked out and Cartmall comes in to a, uh, a a locked desk, and when he finally opens it up, there's an old wine glass, in, a broken wine glass, <laughs> I think, in the in the drawer with some dried up red wine in it. And yeah, I, I I can't think of one at all that was better than this. This was fantastic. Actually, yeah, this handover. So many stories of producers or script editors coming in and just going, the cupboard was literally bare. Yet Hinchcliffe and Holmes come in and. Dixon lets they've cast well, list Laden's continuing. They've cast Tom. They've cast Ian. Uh, Terence has written the first story for them. He's uh, commissioned uh, John Lucarotti and um, Terry Nation and mm-hmm. um, Jerry Davis, and you know commissioned three or four stories to get him going with Daleks and Cybermen and all that excitement stuff. And and, and you know I think in some ways Holmes resented a little bit that he was left almost too much. He's like, mm. hang on, hang on. When do, when, do, when do I get to make a decision about this stuff? <laughs> but but that whole Tom Baker era, like season 12 is shaped by Terrence Dix. Yeah, look, and I think if they didn't do that, Holmes might have been crying in, in the opposite direction, like, oh, they've left me with nothing. So I, I think they did the right thing by doing this. Well, they do. And I think that that's what leaves Robert Holmes the time and space to do something like the Ark in Space, mm. which... You know, John Lucarotti's scripts just completely didn't work and he had to rewrite them basically from scratch and he writes a masterpiece. Could he have done that if he, he was sitting there you know, working the phones going, anybody would run write a Doctor Who story this year? Anybody. <laughs> exactly. Now, this is about the time when Terence starts to get into doing stuff off screen as well. Mm. Now, we'll talk properly about his, his target novels as their own thing shortly, but the, the first target novel written by Terence Dix is Doctor Who and the Order and Invasion, and that is published in January of 74. And in fact, he has two more stories in 74, and then he has uh, four more stories published in 75. So he does transition very seamlessly from script editing Who to writing books. But yes. he also writes some non-fiction books in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, many old school fans have very fond memories of the making of Doctor Who in particular, which has two different covers. There's a Pertwee cover and a Baker cover, yes. uh, if, you, if you're familiar with them. Uh, the Pertwee one's worth a, quite a pretty penny these days, Dave. It is. But again, laying down in black and white, Doctor Who lore. Mm, exactly. And, and I mean, we should say these are the kind of books that have never been seen before. I think... For the uh, the tenth anniversary, the Radio Times did a bit of a Doctor Who special, which had like, you know, commentary on on Doctor Who as a show and such. But there weren't at the time lots of what you would call reference books or or, or books that weren't novelizations of stories and things. They were very thin on the ground. Of course, there's no internet either. There's not really uh, fanzines at this point. They're probably coming in the next few years, later in the Baker era. Yeah. Uh, there, there's just sort of no information on Doctor Who for for the people at home, you know? So this is this is quite a big thing, this making of Doctor Who book. Yeah, and then a few years later, he does one of my most fondly remembered books of my childhood, and that's K-9 and Other Mechanical Creatures. Did you, did you have that one, Rob? I never had that one, Dave. Uh, it was at the school library, and eventually I got a copy of myself. I can't remember where, but I used to borrow it, you know, once a week almost from the school library and it was just all about Daleks and Cybermen and Servo Robots and, <laughs> and Quarks and K9 and just all these things that as a, as a young boy just excite the imagination and, and mm. Terry Sticks knew exactly what excited the, the young imagination and, and he really tapped into that so much. I need to get my hands on one. I think I'd really enjoy it actually. 
Yeah, it's just a lovely little piece. And and looking at it now, it's so simple and so mm-hmm. innocent. But it was just robots. Cool yeah. Doctor Who robots. <laughs> and some might argue that's what Doctor Who should be again. But uh, I digress. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> one of the things that really staggers me about Terence Dix is when I realise he didn't write any scripts with his name on it in the Pertwee era. That is interesting, actually. I'm just trying to think. Let's put his name on a, at least a script or two, didn't he? Uh, he he wrote um, under... The Demons? Well, he wrote under pseudonyms. Oh, that's um, right. You know, Guy Leopold and all that sort of thing. He, yeah, he, he co-wrote The Demons and Time Monster and Planet of the Spiders, definitely. Mm. Uh, and, and he had a role in The Green Death as well, I think. Yes. 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 But no, I don't think with his name on the credits. No. No, no. So you're quite right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's interesting because you think of Dix as being this prolific writer. But, well, well, after the War Games, there actually isn't a story with his name on the credits until Robot. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, Brain and Morbius with a uh, pseudonym. Yes, with a suitably bland <laughs> pseudonym. The, again, the other, the other famous story about him wanting to take his name off it, which I've always thought it says something about his professionalism, that he'd done the job and he knew that when a producer says the script isn't working, change it, and the script editor just has to do it. He, he sort of got that, look, I get what Robert Holmes is doing and I don't like it. I think my version of the script was better, but that's his job. I'm getting paid a check. Um, mm. <laughs> go go away and do it. But uh, yeah, I, I often wonder how much of Morbius is Terence and how much of it is Robert Holmes. Well, we've got to assume it's mostly Holmes for, for him to want his name off it. That's what I've always assumed. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the setup is probably him. And, and probably a certain amount of part one is him. But yeah, there, there's not a lot of Terence left in there. Mm. Isn't it interesting, though? He was quite happy to be uh, script edited by a writer he had previously brought on board. Whereas in the modern era, Russell didn't want to write under Stephen. You know, and it seems unlikely Stephen or Russell will will write under our new boy Chris. Yeah, I think it is a reflection of just the relationships that they had as individuals. I mean, I've never heard anybody in a tell-all interview criticise Terence Dix. No. And, no. And, and clearly, as I said, he and Barry Letts were lifetime friends. He and Robert Holmes were clearly lifetime friends as long as Robert Holmes lived. Um, he got on very well with Eric Saywood, for example. Uh, he got on very well with well, John Nathan Turner, and he didn't get on very well, but I think there were other issues at play there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, it's worth probably talking at this point, Dave, about the concept of Dix as a Tory, because that's where people might have disagreements with him. But certainly, no, no one sort of slags him off, as far as I can see. No, and, and look, he was very open that he was somebody who was born in a particular age and he served in the war and his his, his family had you know, spent some time as administrators in India. And, and he came from very, not, not, you know, ideologically right-wing stuff, but just very establishment we don't need to change anything, we can just sort of sit here and all get along, sort of um, Toryism, you know, that One Nation mm. Toryism. Mm. And, and, you know, certainly he, he's very open about that and his views on that, but it was balanced, I think, by the very small L liberal views of Barry Letts. Yes. And and the two of them sort of worked together very, very well. And even then, though, Terence knew which way the wind was blowing and he'd say okay well the audience wants stronger female characters that's cool i'll write some stronger female characters i'll go and invent sarah jane smith who's a plucky journalist who knows all about feminism and women's lib and look he doesn't always get it right yeah 
<laughs> but 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 he's not sitting there going, I'm just going to write, you know, I'm just going to write more women who can be peril monkeys. And you know, as he says, their their, their job is to be tra- chained to the train tracks by the villain. He says, okay, we need stronger women. I'll I'll go out there and I'll give you stronger women. And and Sarah Jane Smith is a stronger woman than Katie Manning, who herself, you know, Joe Grant was not helpless either. No, no, not at all. She was a field agent. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, that that would all come into it. And and, and he, you know, said, you know, he disagreed, for example, with Bob DeBatt Baker and Dave Martin about, you know, their views on colonialism when they were writing the mutants. But he didn't get in the way. He just said, right, let, let's temper this and make sure that we're not lecturing the audience. We've got message in there and we've got content in there but at the end of the day are we putting out a good fun adventure that will make people tune in next week we need uncle terence leaning over chris chibnall's shoulder i think dave (laughs) (laughs) but he does get to write some stories for the fourth doctor we mentioned robot which i really enjoy yes Uh, horror fang rock state of decay Mm. great scripts Oh, I mean, Horror of Fang Rock. I, th- I think if we don't talk about this for a, a little while, uh, Rob from 42 to Doomsday will <laughs> spontaneously combust out there at his joint. So let, let's talk about that for a moment. I find very few people who don't like that story. No, likewise. And many of them will have it right up there very high on their list. And some, you know, I've heard people refer to it as being a template Doctor Who. And how many people die in it, Dave? Talking of death counts and things. <laughs> Everybody. Everybody. And again, Everybody. a very yes. successful story. So. Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's this idea of just taking an experienced writer who, yeah, understands Doctor Who law, but hasn't written, but hasn't worked in the office for some years and saying, I want a story. I want it on a lighthouse. Go. Yeah. And, and just letting this guy create characters, you know, Skinsale and Lady Adelaide and, and Palmerston, you know, really memorable characters that you recognise. And this is what the best writers do. We've said this often. You rec- you recognise their characters in a few lines, in a few sentences. You instantly know what sort of per- person Lord Palmerdale is. You yeah. instantly know what sort of person Reuben is. To me, the characters in Fang Rock are very Holmesian. Like, if I didn't know who wrote Horror of Fang Rock, I'd assume it was a Robert Holmes script. Like, it might not have the flowery language in places, but the characters are so strong. I, it, it just feels Holmesian to me. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it is a really lovely work. And and let's be honest as well, it's when you get Terrence Sticks written and script edited by Holmes, or vice versa, that's a pretty good pair of minds to be working on any script. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's why I think it is a shame that we don't get more of it today. I mean, imagine a RTD story script edited by Stephen Moffat. I mean, we got Stephen Moffat script edited by RTD and they were generally fantastic. Yes. And I think it would be the same in reverse. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be. I think there should be more of it. Mm. And, and something that I think leads us from horror of Fang Rock into State of Decay is that Terence is also, in my opinion, very across this idea that it should be not educational in a lecturing way, but young children watching Doctor Who should walk away with an appreciation of something, whether it's a person from history or a time in history or a concept or an idea. And you see that in uh, Horror of Fang Rock. You know, he talks about the turn of the century and the, the, the change from gas to electricity and how that was. State of Decay, you get stuff about the continental shift and, you know, vampire stuff. And uh, the Time Warrior, you know, he talks, you know, he, he's talking about, not in a really accurate way, but, you know, knights and castles and all that sort mm. of thing in Crusades. There's always that little, again what he calls the boys' book of, that that thing that would inspire young people watching the series. 
yeah, there, there's always a point to it. And, you know, I, I don't want to belabor um, the most recent series of Doctor Who too much, but you look at some of those stories, you think, well, what, what was the actual point of that story? What, what did I learn? Some of them you learned quite a bit. Some of them were wonderful, but others, mm, I'm not so sure. And the, the first group, I think we both said, were the most successful. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a fan of State of Decay, Rob? I don't mind it. I've never been hugely into it, which is interesting, because I, I do like vampires. I do like darker stories. I like the gothic stuff. You know, it has a lot of ingredients that should appeal to me. Um, I, I like the stories of the Time Lords fighting the, the great vampires and all that. It's not quite a classic for me, though, and I've never been able to put my finger up. Maybe we should look at it in detail one day. Maybe I should rewatch it or something, and we can talk about it. But well, well, when the series eighteen Blu-ray can comes out, could be a perfect time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, one other script for the CV show he did write, Rob, that we have to mention. Yes, please. Well, well, do you want to take us through this because it is your doctor? It it, it is my doctor. It is the twentieth uh, anniversary special, the Five Doctors. Oh, Dave, this is. I've said this before, this is putting on an old pair of slippers and just enjoying Doctor Who. I mean, when people think of Day of the Doctor and how that celebrated the 50th anniversary, yes, absolutely, wonderful story, but this this is different. This is a simpler story. It's a, you know, just a beautiful thing. And I don't know if it's because of the age I watched it at, you know, I was a, con- a contemporary of the, the episode, I was a young child at the time I saw it and such, but... Oh, I could watch Five Doctors every day of the week and not get bored of it, Dave. I really could. Look, I'm absolutely the same. And again, part of it is because it was such a big part of my childhood. But part of it is, as you said, it just works so well. It is so lovely. And Terence gets all of the characters right. There's, there's no moment where you think, that Doctor wasn't like this. And okay, some of them are a little bit caricatured because they, they need to be quickly in the story and they need to sell what they do and the companions all get a little bit to do and they all get to bond and all the little references you know the Lishaw moment the captain yates moment uh the 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 stuff with jamie and zoe is really good and it's the little lines he puts in you know just that casual john pertwee well i've reversed the polarity of the neutron flow so the tardis will be free of the force field or (laughs) that 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 lovely moment where the master's about to threaten the doctor and the brigadier's taps on the shoulder nice to see you again wallop (laughs) oh it's just great It, it is and i'm so glad that he got to write that it is such a celebration and we should say he only got to write it because Robert Holmes couldn't. Yes. Which is very interesting. We've just been praising them both and, oh, aren't they brilliant? Robert Holmes really struggled with it and Terence had to step in. Yeah, and, and I think that as much as I love Robert Holmes, I think that was for the better. This is absolutely something that Terence Dix was built for. Yeah, I think the way Holmes writes, he might have tried to push the boat out a bit too far and it just might have fallen into a, a screaming heap, whereas Terence plays it a bit lighter and it just works better. Yeah, absolutely. I think Robert Holmes was really going for a story in its own right that happened to have five Doctors in it, or mm. in his case, six. And Terence Dix just said, okay, I'm just going to have fun. Let's see the first Doctor, Susan, and a Dalek. Let's see Pertwee being menaced by some Cybermen. Let's put in a restaurant warrior robot let's have a, a yeti for two minutes because hey let's just have a yeti you know that's yep. that's what makes it really fun yeah oh it's just brilliant the whole concept of the death zone on gallifrey just being able to bring all these things bonkers things together in the same space genius yep and and a script that is written with such just light-hearted joy yeah fantastic um and and, and that ends with that moment i i still get you know a lump in my throat when i watch 
Dave, I just turned around and do the whole, you know, when Tegan's doing the whole, so you're just going to go on the run from your own people in a rackety old TARDIS? Why not? After all, that's how it all started. Yeah. And then the music. Yeah. <laughs> it is so good. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm, I might need a cigarette after that, Dave. Well, if we're talking nostalgia, <laughs> let's keep going because we need to talk Target books. Uh, in fact, we need to talk, if you count junior editions, we need to talk 65 Target books. Yes. And, and look, we mentioned him writing these starting off in the, in the mid-70s. And pretty soon he started to, to basically manage the range. I think, though, this was an unofficial sort of thing. He wasn't the official manager, but he just sort of fell into doing it. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, very very much so. He, he calls himself the uncredited unofficial manager in that the company would say, OK, we've got the rights to these. And he would say, OK, well, look, I know the, you know, I know the writer of that one. So I'll ring him and say, hey, do you want to novelise the Abominable Snowman? No, cool, I'll do it. Or, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, you know... Um, uh, hey, Don Horton, do you want to go and novelise one of your stories? Or, hey, Mac Hulk, do you want to do the Silurians for us? Absolutely, here you go. Somebody else doesn't? Cool, I'll do it. Uh, mm. So he, a lot of the ones he does are the um, Robert Holmes stories, uh, because obviously, famously, Robert Holmes only wrote one and a bit target novels. His first work is The Auton Invasion in 1974. He then does Day of the Daleks and The Abominable Snowman, three very good books. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then kicks on, he does four more in 75, uh, the first of them being one of his own, Giant Robot, but he's then into Pertwee stories that he script-edited, so Three Doctors, Planet of Spiders, Terror of the Autons, mm-hmm. and it's then that he starts to really churn them all out. He does a heap in 76, he starts to really get to novelising a lot of the Pertwees and the Tom Bakers in 77, um, not so much in 78, 79, I think he had other work there. In 1980, he writes 10 books or at least has 10 books published in Mm. 1980 and i think when people talk about the terence just turning churning them out books that's the era we're talking about uh and in there you've got stuff like the invasion of time most of the key to time series horns of nymon and look famously destiny of the daleks which um a friend of mine once described as a book you could finish on a trip to the gents <laughs> Very true. Yep. And look, we should say this isn't Terence's fault. I mean, the publisher wants these out. The original writers don't want to do it. Terence knows the format and knows he can bang it out better than anyone else. So he just does it. Yeah, they're not bad books. And, and when you actually go back and read them, often they do have lots of just tiny things in there that you didn't realise. People remember the prologue and the epilogue of Pyramids of Mars, for example, and they're really good. There's a prologue I had forgotten in Horns of Nymon. Is there really? Yeah, there's this like three-page prologue where um, it talks about Skonos and the Civil War's ended and all that's left is the military and a few scientists and then this, this strange ship lands and Sol Deed sort of found as this, you know, this lab technician going, oh, you go in there and check it out. And he comes <laughs> out with the staff and says, oh, I've spoken with the Nymon and it all sort of goes from there. Like little things like that. I read uh, Invisible Enemy a year ago. And mm. in that, like just in the opening chapters, there's all this stuff about how the new empire earth empire works and how it was expanding and it was expected if you were going to be a space astronaut you had to do three months at a station on titan just to you know because that's part of your job like just little details these are not bad books they're they're light and they're quick yeah but there's still love in them yeah oh of course he is a professional he just had to churn them out quickly yeah and something like an unearthly child i mean he that that's the only book he turns out in 1981 and that's a really good book um, and then he starts to do, I mean, Inferno's 84, that's a really good book. 
Oh, look, that's that's one of the ones I remember borrowing from the library and the, the cover, so evocative. Yeah. You and, know, with the guy transformed there in his white lab coat and, oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, and, and as we sort of get past about 1983, 84, they get better and better. Warriors of the Deep, a really good book. Caves of Androzani. Uh, Mind of Evil, really good. A Time Monster, for a story that's bit up and down, a great novelization. And then he just starts to bring them home. Ambassadors of Death, Seeds of Death, Will in Space, Space Pirates. I reckon they are all fantastically good novels. Well, I was just going to say with regard to Time Monster, I read that long before I saw the episode. And I, I'd, I'd heard people say, oh, that's a terrible story. My only experience of it was the novel. I was thinking, what, what are you talking about? That, that's a cracking story. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it, it, some of these novels are far better remember than the TV stories were. And and yeah. he took the charm, and I'm sure he'd love this, to not have to worry about budget. So Omega's Palace is this wonderful, huge palatial thing with this huge singularity flame. Mm. You know, it, it's not a very small set with a bit of pissy smoke you know, rising up. <laughs> <laughs> like a humidifier or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, and, and, and he does that. I mean, look, I've defended the space pirates before, but I get that it's not a great story. The book is really, really good. Mm. Uh, the Wheel in Space is really, really good. And really, really expensive now. Uh, that is true. That is yes. true. <laughs> it's, it's mega expensive. Don't even bother looking for it, people. It's incredibly expensive. So, yeah, I, I mean, he churned out 65 books in 16 years. And that's on top of, again, people go and look him up on Wikipedia, all the other stuff he was actually doing at that time, script editing for TV and writing other things, you yep, know. producing the classic serial, writing other children's books. Yeah. yeah just amazing stuff. Um, but it doesn't end there. No, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, he, he, he goes on. I mean, during the wilderness years, he continues to be associated with Doctor Who. When they get around to doing the Virgin New Adventures, he writes the second one of them, still, in my opinion, one of the best, Ex- uh, Time Worm Exodus. That's a fantastic book. Uh, he writes Blood Harvest, a really good book, and, and and one where famously he has a bit of fun occasionally at some of his own little tropes, which we'll, we maybe need to talk about because there is that wonderful bit, off-quoted, off where the police sergeant is telling the police inspector about how this blue box suddenly disappeared with a sort of a wheezing groaning sound and the inspector <laughs> says what sort of idiot would come up with a, a description like that <laughs> that's um, great but but yeah i mean these phrases that we remember the wheezing groaning sound uh yes. do you remember what sort of face peter davison had rob uh, pleasant and open, I believe, Dave. A pleasant and open face, yes. <laughs> uh, we, we all know that John Pertwee had a shock of white hair. Um, yeah. You know, that most mysterious traveller through time, known as the Doctor. For people of a certain age, because I don't know how many people read Target novels these days, Dave, which is a great shame. These these phrases are just burned into your cortex, you know? There, there's something really familiar and safe when I think back to those opening pages of any... Terence Sticks novel that just started in a familiar way with language and phrases that we all come to expect it really is quite wonderful quite wonderful and heavily nostalgic now before we move to his work with the BBC books was there anything else you wanted to say about the Virgin books simply that at the time when Exodus particularly came out I think Terence's reputation wasn't as strong then as it is now because a lot of people did sort of see him as being the guy who just churned out he said, she said novels, and they didn't really appreciate some of his Latin earlier work. He, was, he wasn't knocked, but he wasn't seen as being the best author. 
and then suddenly it's like he, he delivers Exodus. He's being told, you have no budget, no constraints, no page count limit, write a story. And he mm. creates this wonderful story that expand, spans across time zones and parts of Earth's history and you know, Nuremberg rallies and World War Two and, and zombies and nuclear explosions and, wow, you know, stuff that you could never do. I mean, even with a $10 million budget, you couldn't make that episode. And he, exactly. he does it. Blood Harvest, again, he goes from bootlegger 1930s Chicago to the planet of the vampires. There's stuff on Gallifrey. Huge cast, huge ideas, and just wonderful stuff. But you mentioned Shakedown. Of course, we need to mention... He was the scriptwriter for one of those semi-professional, semi-amateur productions that was made during the wilderness years. And Shakedown came out in '94 from memory, and I'm really fond of that. It was it was an adventure set in the Doctor Who universe with no Doctor, but uh, there were the Santarans. There was a Rutan. It had Caroline Ford in it. It had Sophie Aldred in it. Uh, Jan Chaplin, Brian Croucher from Blake Seven were in it. Michael Wisher was in it. And just this lovely, wonderful story that Terence wrote, and that he then turned into a, a, a um, the middle third of a Virgin New Adventure. Ah, oh, great stuff! But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there, Dave. No, he moves on to the BBC books where he writes far more than for the Virgin books, uh, because the BBC books were the Eighth Doctor adventures rather than the the adventures of the Seventh Doctor. Plus, they also did what are called past Doctor adventures which I guess in the Virgin range were the Missing Adventures. Yes. Under the past Doctor Adventures, Dix did five in total. He did Catastrophea, Players, Warmonger, Deadly Reunion, which was a team-up with Barry Letts on that novel, and uh, World Game. And for the Eighth Doctor range, the what you would call the main range, he did its first novel, The Eight Doctors, and uh, another one called Endgame, which used characters from the past Doctor Adventure players. So he was even tying together you know, these new uh, adversaries he created in players and tying them into later stories in the Eighth Doctor range and, and still doing really creative stuff. The Eight Doctors, though, I'll concentrate on because that, that gets kicked around a lot. It is very basic, but to me, if you if you filmed this, it would be akin to the Five Doctors because it's the Eighth Doctor sort of zipping through, falling into adventures from the previous Seven Doctors and you know interacting with himself and it's just wonderful you know yeah it's hokey but that's five doctors is hokey but it's fun and it's comfortable i find the eight doctors novel very fun and comfortable too but it's not a great story you know there's a difference yeah i think it's really worth noting that when they came to launch this book range in what 1999 i think the eight doctors comes out certainly 88 89 that period Mm. they get a guy who started his work on the show in 1969 yeah who's yeah. for a time was just known as that guy that does 124 pages of he said she said and churns them out mm. and now they're going who do we get to launch our entire range that guy we're getting terence dicks yeah well why why not you know yeah. <laughs> and, and, and i agree i remember reading the eight doctors and thinking okay it's a little bit as you say it's a little bit hokey but it was a fun adventure and i kind of enjoyed the nostalgia and he was kind of getting us all up to date and getting everybody on the same page and then I realised that everybody else hated it. And I was like, really? That's, that's like kicking a puppy. Mm. Yeah, it's like the other authors looked at it and thought, yeah, okay, we're just going to do our own thing from here. Um, and that was a shame. 
Yeah, look, look it, it has its place, it did its job. And, and I think it was very deliberate to have that light, easy, accessible eight doctors. And then they had Kate Orman and John Blum do the Vampire One. Uh, was it Vampire Science, I think it's called? Yeah, Vampire Science, which is a great book. Yeah, which it's is really a great, great book. book. But, but they're, 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 they're very, one's very trad and one's very rad. And that gives you a very good introduction to the range. Yeah. It's chalk and cheese stuff, um, really. But, hey, that's what makes Doctor Who interesting sometimes. Yeah, that's right. But he doesn't finish there. No, Dave. What does he do next? He novelises the Sarah Jane Adventures opener, The Invasion of the Bane. Mm -hmm. He writes two of the new series quick read novellas for, Mm -hmm. I think it's for the Matt Smith Doctor. So, again, this is somebody who has written in one way or another for the second, third fourth fifth seventh eighth and eleventh doctors at least yeah yeah the ones you're thinking of there are made of steel which was 2007 and revenge of the jadoon in 2008 and doesn't that blow your mind terence dix is writing about the jadoon yeah (laughs) they seem like eras that are so separate like nothing links those two eras you know where dix was writing and and the jadoon but no, he's written a novel about the Jadoon. Well, a quick read novel, at least. Yeah, and it's interesting that he has done that because I wanted to mention quickly the re- the reaction he and Barry Letts had to the telly movie in 96, where oh, yes. they, they famously... Now, it, it's not quite clear whether they sort of, you know, walked out halfway through in protest or, you know, the moment that the, the credits started, they were like, we're out of here, that was terrible. But they certainly walked out very unhappy with what was done in that there was a sort of a view that well, they'd had their day and they didn't want to modernise. But no, when when given mm. the chance to work on something they do enjoy, Terence is very happy to go and work on new era stuff. Yeah. You know, it's a shame that this finished uh, about 10 years ago now, that Jadoon book, you know, because he's still, he's still competent. I, I think he could still be writing now for, <laughs> for, for the series, little things like that perhaps, or even stories in the annuals or things. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see that. I guess it's getting a bit late in his, his career now. Yes. Now, which brings me to um, the, 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 the personal, because I have met Terence. Uh, he came to a convention a few years now in, a few years ago now in Australia, and it was kind of wonderful to see him. And he, he was everything you would expect. There was a lovely moment. He, I was sitting in the audience, and the panel was on before me, and then they sort of changed over, and they had this format where Gary Russell was going to interview Terence Dix, and Gary was on stage, and the con manager was sort of starting to get everything done and before that Terence Six had just quietly come into the auditorium and sat a couple rows behind me and he was just sitting there and uh, one of the minders you know just a little sort of 20 year old minder the people with volunteers you get at these conventions went up to him while this was all happening and said um uh, Mr. Mr. Dix uh, you can you can go on the stage now and Terence said, said I will go up when I am announced there is no rush <laughs> <laughs> what a gentleman! Yeah, it just, it just I just thought this is it. This is this is the guy we've all come to see. And you know, he told his old stories and he told his anecdotes. He talked about working in the Trouton era and he talked about working with different people. You know, you know he, he talked about how he, he watched the new series when he could. He liked a lot of it. He didn't like some of it. Um, there was a bit where he said, I, "I hear they've just turned the master into a woman." Oh, I don't like that. And. Gary Russell said, oh, come on, Terence, don't you think in this day of age, you know, why shouldn't the master be a woman? And Terence said, there's no reason, I just don't like it. <laughs> I think we all have relatives like Terence. <laughs> I think we do. But he did get the question, as, as they always do, what's your favourite story? And rather than equivocating or doing what most 
people do and say I love them all. He actually gave us his top three. Oh, do you remember them? I do, and and it was interesting why he picked them. He said, oh, he said, look, oh, I can't give you a favor. I can give you three that mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. The first is the War Games. He said okay. for something that he and Malcolm Hulk just churned out in desperation for it to be so well regarded so many years later he just said that that makes him really proud mm-hmm. uh, he said robot yeah because when he, he says he says when i get to think about the fact that i wrote the first tom baker story and created the fourth doctor's character and set him all up and what a wonderful success and popular doctor he was he said i feel really proud that i started that Oh, bless and he says the five doctors for all the reasons we talked about he says he just really enjoyed Writing that and what what could have been a mess and what could have been a disaster, he feels you know, he's really proud that he thinks you know it was a really lovely story that we regard. So they were they were his favourites. Oh, that's lovely. You know, what we should do in a minute. We should do our own top three or top five Terence stories Ooh. to see how we correspond with that. Oh, good idea, good idea. Um, but look, finally, I did go up and get an autograph from him, and you know, I've met a lot of Doctor Who actors now. I've met several Doctors and a lot of companions and mm. everything, but I've never been more starstruck than standing in front of Terence Dix asking him for an autograph yeah. and, and just thinking how much of my childhood and how much of the best parts and the fondest memories of my childhood were written by this man. Yeah. And I was just absolutely in awe of, uh, of, of, of just having... Terrence sticks in front of me. I, I, I can just remember when I was again at primary school and you'd go to the primary school library and I didn't know how, you know, libraries were laid out or anything, but I went to the D's for Doctor Who and right. there was there was just a whole bunch of Doctor Who novels. Now, I now know it's because they were under D for dicks. Yes. <laughs> but, it, I, but I just thought, oh, I want Doctor Who. I'll go to the D section and there were just all these books that yeah. I that I borrowed and read and loved. Oh, it's lovely. Did you take a Target novel or did you take that copy of Time Frame that you get everyone to sign? I, I took the Time Frame that I got everyone to sign, so yes. Ah, okay. I was going to say, because it would be very hard to choose a Target novel to take. Yeah, that that was a problem as well. And, and look, back in the days when conventions, you know, your, your, your entry ticket got your three free autographs. I would mm-hmm. have done the Time Frame and two books, but... In the age when you've got to pay serious money just for one autograph, it had to be had to be one, sadly. But it, it it's not about the autograph, is it? It's about the moment. Yeah. And and that was a really special moment meeting Terence Dick. Did you get to say anything to him? Like you, you meant a lot to me, or I, I I did. I I was sort of looking for one of those you know words that I could say that sort of was, you know I'm I'm not a really sad loser fan. I'm, I'm you know I've got really intelligent, <laughs> insightful things to say. And no, and you know, see, I just said, look, thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed everything you've written. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's the simplest thing to say, and it's the best, I think. Yeah, and and uh, uh, what what a good life to have led. That even when you're you know pushing into your eighties, for people to come up and go, thank you for making my childhood a happier thing. Exactly. You know, teaching people to read. I mean, the first proper long form novel that I ever read was The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah, so many great memories. I don't know what I'd say to him, but I think it would be something similar to that. Just something simple, and you know, he's he's probably heard it a million times before, but you just need to say something. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was it was a wonderful moment. One one of my favourite fandom moments. So that idea, Dave, our, our top three or top five of things Terence has written. Yep. So I've got, I've got a five. Should we should we do them all together or should we go back and forth? Oh, yeah. Let's go back and forth. All right. Well, we'll kick us off then, Rob. 
Coming in at number one, Dave, The Five Doctors. Snap. <laughs> There's just no way it can't be on the list, let alone at number one. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, fair. That's my number one as well, The Five Doctors, for all the reasons we've already discussed. Okie dokie. Uh, your number two. Horror of Fang Rock. Ah, oh, okay. It is a Not very a good story. Oh, Rob from 42 to Doomsday is going to murder you next time he sees you. I know. I know. Uh, it is Jesus. a very good story. It, it made my shortlist, but not quite my five. Okay. Uh, so my number two, Rob, I did go for Time Worm Exodus, which is just one of my favourite books, full stop, never mind favourite Doctor Who books. It is a wonderful story. It's got everything. I've read it many times over the years, probably more than, well, certainly more than I've read any other Doctor Who fiction book. So, uh, mm. yeah, Exodus is at number two for me. Fantastic. My number three is Brain of Morbius. Ooh, go on. Just one of the very, very early stories I remember, possibly through BBC Video back in the 80s. And I can't even remember if it was the horribly edited version or not. Who knows? But it was great anyway. It was just this wonderfully dark, gothic, scary story to me. And I thought it was wonderful just wonderful and i know his name's technically not on it but you know what i mean i do i do my number three is one that i know won't be a snap roll because of what you've said earlier and that is state of decay yeah not a classic for me but a good story yeah i i really like it i like the characters i like the gothic feel of it i love the way that the doctor and romana worked so well together i think he writes those characters probably better than almost anybody else uh yeah i just have a huge fondness and respect for state of decay i think it's one of the best things he wrote okay uh my number four i'm going really left field here the bbc past doctor adventure players oh i don't know that one tell me about it okay well i thought you might ask that so i actually grabbed grabbed the blurb (laughs) because it's been a while since i i had read it and i could have said look it's the sixth doctor and it's winston churchill and the boer war and that's about all i remember but the actual blurb runs like this dave Arriving on the sun-baked veldt in the middle of the Boer War, the Sixth Doctor is involved in the adventures of a struggling politician and war correspondent, Winston Churchill. Of course, he knows Churchill is destined for great things, but unseen forces seem to be interfering with Winston's historic career. The Doctor suspects the hidden hand of the players, mysterious beings who regard human history as little more than a game. With time running out, can the Doctor find the right moves to defeat them? Interesting. I need to check that one out. Mm. And then that, that's what I was mentioning earlier. The players do come back in the uh, Eighth Doctor story end game as well. So he, he sort of ties them into a, a later story too. Oh, okay, I hadn't even heard of that one. Oh, thank you mm. for that. No, it's good fun. And I know you like Churchill, so there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going left field a bit with my number four as well. And, and I'm cheating a little bit because I'm going to have uh, both Shakedown, the telemovie, and the new adventure. Ha <laughs> ha! This is, look, Shakedown is not the best work of literature. Certainly the movie isn't. It? It's, it's, it, it and the book are just, again, really enjoyable. It's Terence taking out the Doctor Who toy box and just having a lot of fun with it. Mm. it fun with the Sontarans and with the Rutans, you know, with the Galactic Federation. Uh, he, he really gets McCoy's Doctor. Again, yeah, he, he finds that balance between the impish McCoy and the dark Doctor McCoy and just writes him really really well he he gets benny summerfield really really well i just think that's a really fun book and, and although the, the telly movie isn't perfect and in, in fact is a little bit trite at times i just love it to death yeah coming in at number five for me this sort of book ends with my first pick being the five doctors and i'm going to throw in the eighth doctor adventure the eight doctors 
because it does get panned so much, but I'm going to put it on my top five list here because it is such fun and it does bookend nicely with Five Doctors. It's just Terence being Terence. I, I appreciate when you say, you know, he came along in the um, the Virgin Adventures and, and wrote things like Exodus and, and that's amazing, shows what an author he can be. Eighth Doctors is maybe a regression in some people's eyes, but it's a fun regression and I love it. No, I'm glad you picked that. I think it does deserve more love than it gets. For my number five pick, I wanted to go with a Target novel. I had a few options, Invasion of the Daleks, Space Pirates, Ambassadors of Death, but I'm going with his novelization of The Wheel in Space mm. because I remember reading that as a kid and, and then rereading it as an adult and finding the same thing. But, but as a kid, it was so evocative. He has a slightly longer page count with that one, so... He, he takes the time to talk about the space program and, and there's the adventures on the silver carrier and the servo robot. He, he gets the creepiness of the Cybermen really well. He gets the mm. characters really well. He just takes a story that, look, I like, but I get it's not the best Doctor Who story. And it's not the best Cyberman story, but I like it. But he takes an average okay story and just plays with it in such a fun and effective way. And that's what he does in a lot of his later Doctor Who novels. I mean, the fact that he can make the space pirates, which, look, I like it more than other people, but again, I understand it's not a brilliant story. He takes that to a whole new level. You know, he, when, when, when he gets the chance, he really does a lot with these books. And so, yeah, Will in Space for me. Lovely. And, and look, a runner-up for me would have been the target novel, The Time Monster, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. It just made a story that everyone seems to hate seem wonderful to me. I couldn't figure out what anyone was on about. Yeah, look, it's it's a really mixed list that we've come out with there, and we've just scraped the surface. It was so hard trying to get that down to five. But what a wonderful contribution. And look, we've just had so much fun talking about it tonight. Oh, yeah. Look, um, we are well and truly back, people. <laughs> look at the <laughs> runtime already on this episode. Um, yeah, I, well, it's Uncle Terrence. How are we not going to talk this long? <laughs> how, how do you not cover 50 years of involvement in a show? Exactly. Dave, before we start to, to finalise the episode, though, we do have some listener feedback, uh, some mail. Yes. And uh, I'd, I'd like to read it here because it's a lovely email here from uh, William Bill McCann uh, III. Uh, he's from the US. He says, Hello, Robin Dave. I've been test driving a number of new-to-me podcasts, and yours is one I will definitely listen to again. I've noticed lately throughout fandom this mindset where one is compelled to either love or hate the new series and our new Doctor. It's thumbs up or thumbs down with no middle ground. I was reminded of this dynamic during one of your recent episodes when Rob commented on how he had observed this sort of uh, tendency. Unlike a number of Doctor Who podcasts, yours is balanced and doesn't attempt to persuade viewers to come down on one side or the other on an opinion or topic. I appreciate that. As for fans who hate new Doctor Who, please move on and allow the rest of us to overlook its faults and flaws. Without a forgiving fan base, the show wouldn't have such a rich and extended history. I'm a long-time Whovian. I first watched classic Doctor Who on PBS here in the States in the late 1970s, even formed a fan club, and was happy to see the program rebooted in 2005, so I look forward to its return after each hiatus. Upon learning that Series 12 will not materialise until 2020, I began looking for other ways to enjoy the program, and that's how I found your show. Just one more comment on the new series with Jodie Whittaker as our favourite Time Lord. I am quite happy with Chris Chibnall's vision for the show. He delivered what he promised. And he's sent us a link to a news story there where Chibnall's talking about, um, you know, what he promised to, to deliver. And it, yeah, very much so. He did deliver what he promised, uh, Bill. Yeah, that's true. Bill continues, yes, there's room for improvement. There always will be. 
But that isn't what keeps us coming back for more, to see what's new and to experience how some familiar faces and places never change while others are reinvented and evolve. What would the show be without new iterations of the good, the bad and the ugly? or the Daleks. My Whovian handle elsewhere on the internet is Blue Box Bill. As a graphic designer, I must say I like your podcast logo very much, and I wish you happy travels as I look forward to your next instalment. From William Bill McCann Third, Dave. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's gratifying when you set out to do something and people agree that you've achieved it. Or, 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 don't, or when people listen to it, Dave. Well, well people listen to it <laughs> and, and get what you're trying to do. That's really, really nice to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I popped a, a quick email back to Bill and I said, well, look, thank you for, for, for noticing. Um, we do try to be in sort of the sensible centre and we're not the crazies who said, oh, Jodie's destroyed Doctor Who before they'd even seen an episode. Conversely, we're not the people saying Jodie's our favourite Doctor before we'd seen an episode. Um, <laughs> we sit in the centre and we, if we like an episode, we say so. If we don't like it, we say so. And we try to give reasons why. And even in the good episodes we pick out flaws and even in the episodes we don't like i still think we pick out bits we did like you know so it's i think we try to be fair and balanced and that's all you really can be and i, I know what he means there are podcasts out there that are just one way or the other you know and it's like oh I, i'm not sure i can get behind this because you know if you've already decided you hate it and you're never going to like it or you, you you love everything and even when it's terrible you're still going to say you love it well that's not very realistic I hate to blow our own trumpet, but I do think we sit in that nice middle ground, Dave. And, and it's hard because you'd end up disappointing everyone eventually. <laughs> well, look, look, as I say, it's certainly where we aim to sit. And if listeners are listening and feeling that that is where we sit, then I guess it feels good to know that the mission's you know, being, being accomplished. Not, not, not being accomplished when it's not over, but being accomplished. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? You disappoint people eventually because there are people who are going to like more than we like and there are people who are going to dislike more than we dislike and eventually they'll run across an episode where we're saying something's good that they don't think is good or vice versa. Um, but that's just the nature of the game. We can only say what we like or what we don't like. Yeah, absolutely. I'd much rather uh, people are disappointed for me talking honestly than trying to somehow second-guess what they want and pitching to them. Mm precisely that's precisely what it is i think with uh, with uh, some podcasts some websites uh, and so on certainly not all i i certainly listen to some great other doctor who podcasts you know we're not the only one by any means but yeah some are a bit odd uh yes so look uh, speaking of other podcasts not an odd one <laughs> we should, should should stress uh for anybody who has ever listened to the blue box podcast with jr and matt and simon and lee that is now the strangers in space podcast and i mention it because i was invited to guest on one of their desert planet picks episodes during the last month so if you want to hear me talking about nine items that i would take to a desert planet including which classic who which new who which film which book etc etc uh check out my guest appearance on the strangers in space podcast and indeed some of their other material oh very good very good and i think they might have some uh some other podcasts as our, our listeners might know on there as well some some other aussies perhaps uh yes it it does actually remind me a bit of uh that line from the simpsons spin-off showcase you know jr's gone off to do a spin-off series and who knows maybe some of his friends will be along to wish him good luck <laughs> and there's our first simpsons uh reference for the new season of episodes <laughs> yes you got it in in the last few minutes Dave. oh yes excellent well, I've had a lot of fun having that conversation this evening, Rob. I have too. I mean, look, we could 
look at just Terence in the 60s and spend an hour, hour and a half on just that, or in the 70s, or we could talk about the five doctors for an hour and a half. So I, I'm sure we've brushed over things that people might have liked to have heard about. But hey, that's the nature of the game when you're doing the uh, the kind of spread that we were trying to achieve tonight. Uh, yes, touched the surface, but had fun doing it. And I hope our listeners enjoyed listening to it. Absolutely. But look, we'll be back, uh, I think, around the 24th of February, unless I'm mistaken, Dave. That must, must be the last Sunday in February. It is, yes. And the topic, Dave. So we're going to have a little bit of listener involvement in this. You may remember about 18 months ago, we did a special looking in depth at one season of Doctor Who, in that case, season five, uh, the monster season. Mm. I love it. Next month, we're going to look at a season of Doctor Who, and we're going to ask our listeners to help us pick which season that should be. Uh, new series, old series, I'm very, very open. But tweet us, email us, drop us a line, and give us some suggestions about what season of Doctor Who you would like us to go deep diving on in our next episode. Absolutely. And if there's some reason why you'd like us to do it too, uh, mention that as well as just the, the season number. Uh, you know, because I think we looked at Series 5 for a particular reason, Dave. Yeah, so with Season 5, we said, you know, this has sort of been getting a lot of flack lately and people saying, oh, it's all based under sieges and it's all boring. We said, no, no, let's actually look and see if it really is this and maybe maybe go a little bit against fan wisdom right now. So, mm. yeah, that's the sort of thing we're looking at. Look at a season that maybe doesn't get a lot of attention or that you think needs a re-evaluation or a reappraisal. So um, we'll say maybe if by the 10th of February we could have that feedback and that gives us a couple of weeks to well actually watch the season if necessary and, <laughs> and form some thoughts but yeah what season would you like us to talk about absolutely it's all up to you fantastic anyway until then i've been rob and i've been dave we'll see you next time bye bye you've been listening to the doctor who show the podcast where too much doctor who is barely enough Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.